Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. I know that you have all been waiting on this episode to come out because what the hell was going on at Joint Base Meyer Henderson Hall circa 2009 and 2010? For anyone tuning in for the first time, or for the first time in a long time, listeners, this is part two of a two-part episode, so be sure to listen to episode 116 before you listen here, because seriously, you will be kind of lost. That being said, quick recap. February 2010, Arlington, Virginia. A man was driving around in a Dodge Durango. He was assaulting women on the street with a gun and knife. Two women got away, but two women were forced into a home One of them was later sexually assaulted and left for dead. A keen-eyed police officer had seen the sketchy Durango, wrote down the license plate number. When a bolo was put out for the Dodge Durango, the cop pulled it up and boom, they had their guy. A 20-year-old Marine stationed at Joint Base Meyer Henderson Hall. DNA tied him not only to the Arlington assaults, but also to a double murder that occurred in George's hometown. This all happened the year before he joined the Marines. But then, during a jailhouse confession, George admitted he committed, quote, the perfect crime, end quote, and that was the murder of a Navy sailor by the name of Amanda Snell, who lived seven doors down from him on base. That's the recap. Major trigger warning, same as last week. Today's episode includes rape, the murder of children, vile computer searches, and a description of an abduction. While I do not go into excruciating detail into all this, I do believe it is best that you skip this episode if you feel you may become distressed. With that said, join me today as I bring you the conclusion of the cases involving George Avila Torres. Now, let's dig in. My sources for this episode remain the same as part one and include various appellate court opinions and court filings, reportings in the Washingtonian, the Daily Herald, Chicago Tribune, New Zealand Herald, the DOJ website, Arlington Now, Chronicle, Illinois, Washington Times, and websites Find a Grave and the Bureau of Prisons website. Amanda Jean Snell was born on January 19, 1989 at 29 Palms in San Bernardino County, California. Amanda's mother had served in the Marine Corps, so it's not surprising to learn that Amanda decided to follow in her mother's footsteps. In June of 2007, Amanda graduated from the Chaparral High School in Las Vegas, Nevada. She was very active in junior ROTC and was involved in various local charities. A few months after graduating on August 29, 2007, Amanda enlisted in the Navy. She attended basic training in Great Lakes, Illinois, and then attended the Navy and Marine Corps intelligence training in Virginia. By fall of 2009, Amanda had settled into Navy life and she was stationed at the Pentagon, working as the work center supervisor for the chief of the Naval Operations Intelligence Plot. According to her former supervisor, Commander Motherly, 
Petty Officer Snell was known for her devotion and her loyalty was felt in her community. She was always willing to help someone in need. She was loyal, honest, kind, and generous. At one point, while working at the Pentagon, Amanda worked delivering briefing books to various admirals at the Pentagon. And it was imperative that those books weren't late. The good thing is that if Amanda was on the case, the briefing books were never late. Amanda was known for carrying two 10-pound bags through the quarter-mile maze that is the Pentagon, four flights of stairs, and she did all that in under two minutes while wearing heels. Amanda always busted her rump to make sure her work was always on point. And it's not surprising seeing as her goal was to one day be the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. Amanda loved her job, but she also loved church and she was an active member of the Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Alexandria, Virginia. There, she served as a youth minister. Amanda had her entire life ahead of her. But then, on July 13, 2009, Amanda, who was never late, failed to report to work. Her supervisor went to check on her. It was either her supervisor or her supervisor sent someone. But somebody went to check on Amanda and Keith Hall on Joint Base Meyer-Henderson Hall. They knocked on her door and no answer. Then they checked the doorknob and the door opened right up. Okay, this was a little bit odd. Inside the room, there was no sign of Amanda. Her room was made, but something was off. The pillows didn't have pillowcases and the top sheet of her bed was missing. Whoever was looking for her explored further, opening up the closet. And when they did, that's where they found Amanda. Amanda was found inside her wall locker. According to court documents, Amanda was shoved inside. She was in a, quote, unnatural position at an angle on the floor of a wall locker with her knees pressed into her torso and her feet pushed against a drawer. Her head was covered by a pillowcase and was pushed down into her chest, end quote. An autopsy was conducted on Amanda and it revealed that Amanda had died about 36 to 48 hours before her body was discovered. Amanda had no obvious signs of sexual assault. There was no bruising or any other type of obvious signs of foul play. Amanda's death was definitely questionable, but because there was no obvious signs of significant injury, her cause of death was ruled undetermined. It should be noted that Amanda's body did have, quote, unexplained petechia, which are tiny round brown purple spots due to bleeding under the skin, end quote. A little bit of my research revealed that petechia isn't necessarily caused only by strangulation, but that's usually when we hear about it discussed on a true crime podcast. But moving on, everything about Amanda's death was suspicious. So NCIS was called in to investigate. By 7.45 a.m., either on the morning that Amanda was found or the, pro or the next day, NCIS began their investigation. And remember, the autopsy wasn't complete at that time. So NCIS walks through, they take inventory, they take pictures, and they take shoe print impressions that they found in the vinyl floor in front of the wall locker. The shoe print was interesting because the foot was way bigger than Amanda's foot. And on top of that, Amanda's valuables appear to be missing, including her laptop and her iPod. But the room was clean and there was a vacuum cleaner that was left out. The bedding also appeared off, although the bed was made. So NCIS bagged up the bedding and they took that shoe imprint 
But because Amanda's case was never ruled a homicide, they never sent it for testing. Had they done this, they would have nagged a killer dead in his tracks. NCIS conducted knock and talks in Keith Hall, asking neighbors if they knew Amanda and if they had seen anything. Residents were asked to fill out personal data sheets, answering a few questions. And according to court records, rooms were inspected and residents were asked to submit to a DNA sample. George, living just a few doors down from Amanda, was questioned and asked to fill out a form. He told investigators that he didn't know Amanda, nor had he ever been in her room. He did allow them to search his room and his room was exceptionally clean. And George provided a DNA sample without hesitation. NCIS reached out to those who were closest to Amanda, her friends and family. During those interviews, NCIS learned that Amanda suffered from extreme headaches, the type where you get in a dark room and cover your eyes kind of extreme. And according to the Washingtonian, Amanda was known to curl up in a dark place and she was known to put a sheet or a pillowcase over her head. When the NCIS agents sat down to discuss Amanda's death investigation with each other, without any evidence pointing towards a murder or an accident, the agents were split. Some agents thought that Amanda's death was a terrible accident. She went into the wall locker while suffering from an intense migraine, covered her head with a pillowcase, and then got into a position that caused her to suffocate. But all the Margos in the room, because I am always suspicious of everybody, they thought Amanda had been murdered. According to the Washingtonian, one of the agents who held this belief, his name was John Wagner, and he was the deputy assistant director of the criminal division of NCIS. He was like, no, 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 no. Investigate this as a murder. But what happens in cases like this? No one followed through because if they would have tested the sheets, well, we'll get to that. But let me just interject here because I can. After starting this show, I've come across or been informed of so many, I mean, many suspicious deaths that occur while on active duty. And I'm always overwhelmed by the fact that more evidence goes untested than evidence that is actually tested. And it's kind of scary. I personally think it's a money and a manpower issue. But who am I? Just a girl with a podcast. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy. And it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. 
If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. It's now August of 2010 and George is full on confessing to Osama. Unbeknownst to him, Osama is wearing a wire. And George told Osama about the, quote, perfect crime, end quote, that he committed. He said he chose a random victim and he left no visible wounds on her. He said he entered Amanda's room through an unlocked door. Amanda was sleeping and didn't suspect a thing. He walked close to the bed and then jumped on Amanda. His story about what happened next changed with each iteration of storytelling, but his versions included that he strangled Amanda with his hands, that he strangled her with a plastic bag, or that he strangled her with a laptop cord. During his taped confession to Osama, George accurately described the positioning of Amanda's body which you know damn well the military is not good about letting the media know about crimes that have been committed on base. So there is no way on God's green earth that George was reading the newspaper about how Amanda's body was found. In this case, only her killer would know and describe that information to a T. George said that Amanda's body wouldn't fit laying down. So he bent her knees and made it so that she was sitting down. Where's my boy, John Wagner? You were right. George told Osama that after he stuffed Amanda's body in the footlocker, he then got to work cleaning the room for two full hours. He made the bed, removed anything on the bed that might have held evidence. Then he left and got rid of everything. There was one fact that George got wrong. He said he put a bag over Amanda's head when it was really a pillowcase. But throughout his conversations with Osama, George would say, yeah, I'm keeping you on your toes so they can't use what I tell you against me. (laughs) This guy is something else. With this shocking confession, authorities reached out to NCIS. I am sure that John Wagner had a huge I told you so moment. And the evidence that Betsy and the shoe print, well, they were sent off for expedited testing. The shoe print, an exact replica of the Nike sneakers that had been confiscated from George's room after his arrest for the Arlington attacks. And the bed sheet, it had George's semen on it. Boom. Got him. The new evidence was then sent to the military pathologist that initially listed Amanda's cause of death as undetermined. The pathologist now had enough to change Amanda's manner of death to asphyxiation and her cause of death to homicide. I may have gotten that mixed up, but you get the picture. When investigators pay George a visit to have a little chat about Amanda, he's like, yeah, she lived by me, but I have never been in her room. Liar. On May 26, 2011, a federal grand jury indicted George for the first degree murder of Amanda Snell. So I immediately wondered why George wasn't charged by the military for Amanda Snell's death. But I believe it's because by the time he confessed to her murder in August of 2010, it took them time to test the evidence. And by May of 2011, the Marine Corps had already kicked George out of the military. So that was that. And listen, I don't blame them. 
But it's always interesting to me when poorly behaved military members are just kind of kicked out and everyone acts like they never existed. I mean, it is full blown frowned upon to talk about criminals that you served with in the military. George Avila Torres' first trial began in October of 2010, eight months after he was arrested for the Arlington arrest. The trials took place in Virginia. All three victims testified against George, and I am sure those poor women were petrified. George did not testify, but he continued to deny any involvement in those assaults and Jill's attempted murder. But just as a reminder, he was not charged with attempted murder. But let's be honest, that's what he did. The trial lasted but three days and the jury found George guilty on all 14 counts. Two months later, George had to face his survivors again during his sentencing hearing. Each survivor had to tell how their lives have changed since February. Each woman gave heart-wrenching statements about living in fear and not being the same person they were before this happened. Maria said in part, quote, I'm a runner. Every morning, I look over my shoulder. I have to run with other people. I cannot run by myself. I have fear. I have anger. And I live with all those things, end quote. Kesha said in part, quote, I used to be a strong, independent woman. And now I feel like I always have to have somebody with me or take cabs. That sense of security is just gone, end quote. Jill said in part, quote, I can't be alone in the dark. I can't sleep and I'm just angry and upset all the time. He has changed me as a person. He has changed the way I live my life, end quote. On December 10th, 2010, George was sentenced to five life sentences plus 168 years to be served consecutively. And the judge was a true patriot. You know, judges always have to get their jabs in. I freaking love judges. So Judge Benjamin Kendrick called George a predator and a coward and then said, quote, you were never a Marine, end quote. Damn. George was then sent to the Red Onion State Prison, which is a supermax state prison in Virginia. But wait, before I continue, our wimpy looking boy, George, he had quite the little temperament. Not only did he plot to have the three victims in his Virginia case killed that summer, he was caught with a shank and then later he fabricated a small tool that he used to unlock his handcuffs. And then he told a fellow prisoner that he was really hopeful he'd get the death penalty, which wasn't even on the table in Virginia anyway. But he ultimately said that if he didn't eventually get the death penalty, he would kill a security guard to ensure he'd get it the next time. What? This guy is nuts. And well, once he got to Red Onion, I guess he wasn't doing well and he sent his sister a letter threatening to kill a correctional officer's kid if he didn't stop calling him names. In February of 2012, it was time for George to face the music for the murder of Amanda Snell. This was a federal court case and George must have been praying real hard because they would actually be pursuing the death penalty. George was like, cool, okay, now let me represent myself because apparently he and his court-appointed attorneys were not getting along. 
by early 2013, probably after his defense attorney was like, please help me, please help me help my client. The court ordered a competency hearing. After an examination, Dr. Richard Rather, a psychiatrist, found that George did not suffer from a diagnosable mental illness. Further, George was fully competent to stand trial and he had the requisite mental and psychological capacity to represent himself. It should be noted that according to court records, George had zero desire to put on a defense. He didn't want to put on any, I mean, any mitigating evidence. It was looking like George was going to be acting as his own attorney. But alas, three days later, George told the judge, nah, it's probably not in my best interest to represent myself. And with that, he got a new attorney. On March 31st, 2014, George's trial in Amanda Snell's murder began in federal court. The trial lasted four days, where the prosecution called more than 30 witnesses and presented hundreds of pages of exhibits. The prosecution presented evidence of George's vile computer search history. They presented evidence of what he did to the three Virginia survivors, minus the evidence that showed that he left Jill to die, however. And they weren't allowed to bring up anything about George's plot to have those victims murdered while he was in jail. Mind you, I don't, I don't remember that he'd ever been charged for that. The prosecution presented the DNA evidence on the sheets and they presented his jailhouse confession. George's defense was the same as Shaggy. It wasn't me. But what about that jailhouse confession? Well, according to him, he just exaggerated prison talk, nothing else. The defense presented one, I mean one witness, and it was a Marine who testified that there is a rule on base that you can't have people of the opposite gender in your barracks room with the door closed, which is a little bit confusing, but maybe the argument is that there was some sort of consensual relationship between Amanda and George, and that's the only reason he lied? I don't know, and it's not important here. On April 8th, 2014, the jury convicted George for Amanda Snell's murder. Sentencing began a few weeks later on April 21st, and death was on the table. The prosecution introduced two statutory aggravating factors based on his convictions from the February 2010 attacks. The first was the previous conviction of a felony involving the use or attempted or threatened use of a firearm. And two, previous convictions involving the infliction of or attempted infliction of serious bodily injury or death. During the sentencing hearing, the prosecution also presented evidence of the double homicide in Illinois. When it was George's turn to present a sentencing case, according to the New Zealand Herald, George, quote, instructed his attorney not to contest the penalty phase of the case, and none of the witnesses were cross-examined by the defense, end quote. On April 24th, after deliberating for just four short hours, the jury sentenced George to death. It should be noted that while no mitigating evidence was presented, seven of the 12 jurors still found one mitigating factor, and that was the fact that George was only 16 years old when he killed his first two victims. On May 30th, George was officially sentenced to death. The Lake County Chronicle reported that George was the first person since 2007 to receive the death penalty at the federal level. In August of 2017, the Fourth Circuit Federal Appeals Court upheld George's conviction and the death sentence for Amanda's murder. In May of 2019, after filing a writ of cert, the U.S. Supreme Court denied the writ.
Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. In 2018, according to the Daily Herald, after George was tried in federal court for Amanda's murder, he was transferred to Lake County, Illinois, to stand trial for the double murder of Laura and Crystal. For this case, at first, George's attorney was screaming up and down, you already have the girl's murderer. It's Jerry Hobbs. He confessed. The attorney yelled and screamed that George's DNA did not prove that he was the only person responsible. And Jed Stone, George's attorney, was like, listen, Osama, the guy my client allegedly confessed to in jail, he's dead now. So I can't cross-examine him and we can't use that confession. Wait, what? Oh, yeah, that jailhouse snitch. He was let out of prison. His name is Osama. And in February of 2016, his body was found in a pickup truck in Maryland. As reported by the Daily Herald, Osama had been shot and killed during a robbery. But anyway, after much kicking and screaming, Mr. Stone, the defense attorney, worked out a cush deal for George. You see, George hated Red Onion, the Virginia state prison he was at, and he would do just about anything to get out of that place, including plead guilty to the double homicide. So Mr. Stone worked out a plea agreement, whereas George would plead guilty to two counts of first degree murder in exchange for being moved out of Red Onion. And with that, on September 18th, 2018, more than 13 years after he killed those two little souls, Laura Hobbs and Crystal Tobias, George pled guilty to their murders. He was sentenced to 50 years for each little girl. In this case, the judge had some choice words for George. Judge Daniel Shanes told George, that his crimes were, quote, cruel, cold-blooded, and devoid of mercy, end quote. He continued, quote, one murder is a tragedy. Your murder of these two little girls was reprehensible. What you did is repugnant to every moral of civilized society, end quote. Judge Shanes didn't skip a beat making sure that George knew just how evil he was, stating, quote, Within each of us, there is a divine spark of goodness, but not for you. If that spark is there, it is buried so deep, it is unattainable for you, end quote. When asked if he had anything to say, George declined to speak. 
George is currently incarcerated in the FTC Oklahoma City. After the hearing, Crystal's mom told news outlets, quote, We're glad it's over. It has been a very long time. And this ensures he'll never do anything like that to anyone else, end quote. So you're probably wondering, what in the world happened to Jerry Hobbs? By the time the DNA was matched to George in 2010, Jerry Hobbs had spent the better part of five years in prison. But he was released on August 4th, 2010. After his release, he moved to Texas to live with his mother, and he later sued the county in Illinois for wrongful imprisonment. The Lake County Chronicle reported that in February of 2014, Jerry was awarded a $7.75 million settlement from numerous law enforcement agencies and municipalities connected with the Lake County Major Crimes Task Force. The Lake County News Sun reported that after winning the lawsuit, Jerry was, quote, was later arrested and imprisoned on drug charges. Hobbs pled guilty to methamphetamine possession, among other charges in Oklahoma, and was sentenced to 15 years in prison with the last 10 years suspended pending successful probation, according to court records, end quote. Jerry was released on parole in May of 2017. Then, in September of 2018, he was arrested after a police pursuit in Archer City. After he was caught and arrested, he was charged with evading arrest and possession of meth. Of course, there were a lot of moving pieces in this case, not only because of all of the victims that George Torres left in his wake, but because of all of the different jurisdictions that came into play. After George's initial trial in Virginia, there was one person, however, who kind of felt guilty about not speaking up sooner. The Washingtonian reported in 2012 that Officer Clifford regretted not speaking up sooner. So he hung a picture of George on his wall with a reminder, quote, never second guess yourself, end quote. This story had so many MVPs, but I think Officer Clifford was the real MVP. Him and the Arlington, Virginia survivors who not only got justice for themselves, but they got justice for Amanda, Laura and Crystal. Before I sign off, I wanted to talk to you about my podcast friend who is a Marine and served alongside George Avila Torres. She said it was okay for me to share her name and the following story. Her name is Liz and she hosts a podcast called Latina She Served. Go listen. What she recalled of knowing George is that George was really close friends with one of Liz's Marines. Whenever Liz hosted a meal at her house for her Marines, one of her Marines would invite George over because he also lived in the dorms and they were close friends. Liz said she remembered George being very quiet, but he had a sense of humor. Liz had a newborn at the time and she allowed George to hold her baby. Although she did share with me that knowing what she knows now, the thought of him holding her baby sends chills down her spine. Liz worked immediately across from Keith Hall and she recalled hearing sirens and she recalled seeing all the cop cars in the parking lot of the barracks, which have since been knocked down, and everyone was wondering what the hell was going on. And you know, stand around long enough and the rumor mill starts. And the rumor was that there was a suicide. So they had cordoned off the building and the parking lot and everyone was, in Liz's words, quote, stunned, confused, and worried, end quote. 
Eventually, though, the truth got out. They learned about the women in Arlington who were attacked, and they learned that George was actually responsible for the sailor that died months earlier. Liz, ever the consummate Marine, immediately thought of her Marine who was good friends with George. Liz said to me, quote, I would check in with my Marine who was friends with him and even asked her if she ever suspected. Never, never was her answer, end quote. Thank you, True Crime Army, for your continued support. I want to give a quick shout out to Haley Gray for her assistance with researching this episode. As I always remind you, this podcast would not be possible without all of you, my wonderful listeners. So thank you. Make sure that you follow me on social media, on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast, and on TikTok at Military Margot with a T at the end. This episode was researched and written in collaboration with Haley Gray. Military Murder was created by Mama Margot Productions and is produced in collaboration with my bootcamp and higher fan club members. Shout out to this month's executive producers, Jen, Tina, Alicia, Bob, Falcon 13, and Nicole. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another Military Murder story next time. working on our podcast. I don't want to.